welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 27. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are not happy to be here. Usually, we tell you that we're happy to be here. If we were to do that today, we'd be lying. We don't feel it necessary to lie to you. We've been talking since last week's episode about how much we hate this movie. Not much has changed in seven days. I will say this. I'm happy to put this episode behind us. As promised last week, we reviewed the animated Alice in Wonderland, and I never ever want to bury the lead, but I said it last week, we hate Tim Burton's remake, and we have never come on this show before and said really anything other than something that's complimentary about a Disney film, we are ready to rip this a new one. Here's the thing. I said on on last week's show... I like Alice in Wonderland, and I don't know why. Mm. The fact that I can't pinpoint why I like a movie is sort of strange. The fact that I am so annoyed with the remake of a movie that I like for reasons I don't understand makes absolutely no sense in theory. But if you've seen this movie, you know how bad it is, and I'm just going to say it now, and I'll probably say it again. I don't care about Big Fish. This is why I'm afraid of Dumbo. I know. Every time it's come up, I'm like, no, if he makes it like Big Fish, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. But then you reminded me how excited I was for this because I was like, oh, great. It's going to be like Beetlejuice and Batman. But in Alice in Wonderland, it's going to be fantastic. And my favorite actor's in it. What a colossal disappointment. At times where it reminded you of Beetlejuice and Batman, it's it's times where I wish it did not remind me of Beetlejuice and Batman. Yeah. And I know one problem that you had basically from the jump. In fact, it was one of the first things you said to me after we saw the film for the first time, which thank God we didn't pay to see. The radio station we were working for at the time did a free screening of it. And thankfully, that's where we saw it. Because if I would have spent $13 to see this movie, I would have gone off the rails. But everybody was so hyped for it. I remember when we used to do free screenings at the station, we would do them as like ticket giveaways. And unless you were actually working the premiere event, you didn't really go for the film. But I remember so many of our coworkers came with us. Because everyone was so hyped for this movie. And then you saw it. But (laughs) it it was the marketing that had upset you most of all. The first thing you said to me after it was done was, this wasn't a remake. Right. It was more of a sequel. This was like false advertising because we thought this was another of Disney's live action remake. Now, granted, this was before they started redoing almost the entire catalog. This was still like an early one. Uh, I actually think really it was just Dalmatians that had been remade up until this point where they announced that they were going to redo Alice in Wonderland live action. I don't remember if this was before or after Maleficent. You might be right. Maleficent might have been after this. Well, regardless. It doesn't change the fact that it's a bad movie. Yeah. They plant so many seeds that Alice has been to Wonderland before that this is really just another adaptation of it and it's her going back because a lot of the characters that she's running into tell her they remember her before and they say you look different and they plant the seed that she's had dreams about Wonderland and then you come to find out that she has been there before Um, and this Alice is visibly older than the child of the animated film so I just don't understand why they said they were remaking it this is just really another retelling of it and and a different take on it because the same way the animated one does this film pulls from both books Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass Wonderland or Underland or is it Wonderland because they don't know no it's Ah, 
Well, we, st- we started her engagement party, supposedly. She-, she didn't even know this was an engagement party. Was this a thing? I don't even know. Or is this just Burton? Well, I will say this. And this is one of the things that's so infuriating about this film is that we talked about how the animated Alice in Wonderland is a series of vignettes and you needed a story to ground the whole thing. They address that here, albeit not well, but they did at least try and redeem that by giving Alice a little bit of a story. So... um, to set up the film for those who haven't seen it, and if you haven't, I hope you don't waste your time. I, I hope this is the actually the one time we're going to tell you don't go out and see this movie. Yeah. Save save your money, save your time. And if it's on television, save the room in your DVR. Don't even <laughs> DVR it. Um. So yeah, they start off as, uh, actually Alice is a child and she has a nightmare and she goes to tell her father about it and he's... Uh, like a creative inventor type. He's having a meeting with some like mustached Englishmen and uh, he goes and he puts her back to sleep. And, um, you know, he basically, he does kind of feed into her being a dreamer and he, he doesn't tell her it's just a nightmare. Go back to sleep. Like he actually does. He's not even humoring her. He actually engages this dream that she's having. Right. And he says something to her, Something to the effect of, I believe in, what is it? I believe in six impossible things every morning. Yeah. Yeah. So he's, you know, actually who he reminded me of was uh, Travers Goff from Saving Mr. Banks. You hit the nail on the head. It's, It's that exact same relationship. So naturally he dies too. Of course. Alice's father. Uh, uh, okay, now it's a Disney film. Yes. <laughs> uh, and now cut to the engagement party. Uh, she's about to be engaged to a guy that she clearly doesn't really like. And who could? Because this guy is awful. He's a weasel in Hamish. a suit. He is. Uh, Looks like one. He acts like one. Oh, Hamish. yeah. And the, just everything in the name. like that, that That's such a Burton thing. But that that's to me where like the Burton humor actually does shine a little bit here. But he was going to be a lord. He He was was going going to be be Lord Hamish. And her mom is supporting her being wifed up because, you know, back in the day, women didn't have a lot of options. And she basically said, you're as pretty as you're ever going to look. You need to jump on board here while you still can before your looks start to fade. Yeah, she basically said, get married before you're ugly. Exactly. By the way, Alice, Alice is 20. But back in the day, people, like, they got married, I, I think 20 was late, actually. Right. Um, so, yeah, her mother is forcing this marriage upon her, but unbeknownst to her, this is the engagement party. He's going to propose, and then they have everyone there ready to celebrate. It's like a big to-do, you know, there's a band, there's music, there's dancing. Uh, and as Alice is kind of, like, navigating through this party, um it starts planting the seeds of all the people that she's going to meet in Wonderland. Like there's these twin girls that actually are the ones who spoil the surprise that she's about to be engaged. Uh, there's, uh, it was nice. It was nice to see the twins from the shining get work again. (laughs) Oh my God. It's so true. Yeah. They were kind of creepy. Yeah. Uh, then right before he's about to propose, you see the caterpillar on Hamish's shoulder. Um, Alice has a scene with her almost mother-in-law to be and she sees the white rabbit running around and that's actually why she runs away is because she goes to chase the white rabbit. Yeah, let's make no mistake about it. Alice is 20 going on seven. Yeah. It's, you know, she's constantly looking up into the sky and like while they're dancing, she walks into somebody and Lord Hamish says, oh, Lord Hamish says (laughs) to her, what do you do? Are you distracted? Oh, I was just thinking what it would be like to fly. You know, it's like it's, real space cadet. Oh, yeah, it's real bad. And she looks like a corpse. She's it's just like such a Burton thing. Like she is like, you know, f- like worse than fair skinned, like t- almost totally pale, like Ichabod Crane, Sleepy Hollow. We've seen this before. 
hell. Well, he did. I mean, in Sleepy Hollow, Christina Ricci's been a brunette her entire life, and he whites her face out. They dye her eyebrows blonde, and they make her blonde. She doesn't look like herself at all. But that, I mean, that's such a Burtonism thing to do, like with the, you know, the long, wavy hair and the very fair, pale skin. Um, I will say this. Is Mia, I will butcher her name every single time. Mia was... Wasikowski. Wasikowska. Wasowski. She's Mike Wasowski. <laughs> I'll go with that. Wasikowska. That's fine with me. But we're going to call her Mike Wasowski. I think she looks great for the time period, but she's not what you would picture for as Alice grown up. She's a burned piece of toast. She's just bland. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying in appearance, but as an actress in this entire movie... She everything is just like one dimensional, monotoned, and bland. You, she didn't, you don't even put butter on that toast. <laughs> um, you're nicer than I am. I'm just saying the Burtonization of this girl actually does work for the time period, and that's as about as much credit as I'm going to give it. Yeah, it's probably the that's probably the the last nice thing you're going to hear either of us say. Well, I haven't said anything nice either than welcome to Monoreal Radio. <laughs> no, and here's the part where we would usually give you the rest of the plot, but being that Alice in Wonderland the animated one is a series of vignettes, it really doesn't have a story. You know, we've kind of set this one up for you and uh I just say down the rabbit hole we go. Okay, because we can't push this any further. I will say they they tried to do this Wizard of Oz thing, but it didn't work at all. Don't even get me started. Right? Where clearly the twins were supposed to be Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Her future mother-in-law was supposed to be the Red Queen. And it just falls on its face. Because they're they're using the lines, too. Yes. Uh, yeah, like the the future almost mother-in-law she says um when she spots the white rabbit she's like oh we'll sick the dogs on them or something something to that effect and like she's just completely uncaring and she doesn't like the fact that they that they planted white roses instead of red that's it that's the big one that's the big tell so they tried it and it fell on its face much like the horrible cgi as soon as we enter wonder under land oh no no no! we're not in wonderland <laughs> yet we need to talk about how they race through one of the best scenes in the film when she goes, goes down, down the, the rabbit, rabbit hole, hole. Mm -hmm. in the animated sequence th that's one of the coolest scenes to me is she's just floating there and her dress balloons out and she's seeing everything upside down and you know it really is that transition because we talked about it last week where they're saying up is down and left is right and you see that everything is literally getting flipped on its head and in this case she's falling just you know in like real gravitational force she is just falling down this hole yeah how she had no injuries from this I have no idea no and that was to me where they could have had a little bit of fun with it like if they did make her dress balloon up and she was kind of floating a little bit and, you know, like that's where you do get excited for Burton to do a film like this is because he's so good with set design. Like I, I wanted to see that. I wanted to see some, you know, crazy take on, you know, just things being upside down and the doorknob and you really didn't get any of that. No, not at all. That was a big disappointment. And then she finally gets into Wonderland and what's the first thing we see is a crazy twisted tree. After she went through the door from Beetlejuice and we get introduced to Pugsley D and Pugsley Dumb. <laughs> um, yeah, the Tweedles in this film are both played by Matt Lucas, who most people will recognize uh, from Bridesmaids. Yeah, he plays uh, Rebel Wilson's brother. Uh, looks the same. I'm, I'm guessing he is just a bald male and and no eyebrows yeah and that's why they went with him um and he plays both parts which you know is fine because they cgi'd them anyway mm -hmm. they are by far one of the creepiest things i've ever seen like they disturb me 
probably as much as the Gogans did back in the day in Peach Dragon. Oh, but that's what Tim Burton wants because Burton really tried to out Burton himself in this movie between the twisted trees, the broken wrought iron fences. Just throw a dart at anything he's done in any movie and with the exception of the stylized blood. And he basically puts it in a blender and threw it at Disney and said, okay, we're going to do Alice in Wonderland, but we're going to do it my way. No, and it really doesn't fit here because otherwise Alice is walking through flowers because at this point she's small. She starts this film as three inches. She's smaller than everyone. So she is below the flowers, but the flowers and the grass, they're all really colorful and they pop. So you really have no reason to have this dead, twisted tree. And I said it in our Nightmare Before Christmas episode. Um, I do love Burton's style. I think it's really unique and it's interesting and the visuals are really cool. However, it's a shtick now. We've seen it so many times. There's really no variation on any of it. And it's just gotten to a point where, like, it's all been done before. It's not unique. It's it's not innovative. And you kind of need to reinvent yourself, especially with a film like this. And what drives me crazy is that he swears he doesn't do it on purpose. I read a book about him called Burton on Burton. And basically the author just sat down and did like a series of interviews and wove them together and put them in print. And it was an annoying read because he was so self-aware, but like would swear up and down that he never intended for everything to be so similar stylistically. He's such a liar. Well, Yes and no, because then we went to the exhibit at MoMA where they had all of his work on display at the Museum of Modern Art. And you saw sketches from his childhood and you saw the influence of where like this little monster drawing was later used in Nightmare Before Christmas or like some kind of spiral was later used in Beetlejuice. So I really believed that he was just like pulling from his own influence but if that's the case, like, I don't know, go back through through your sketches from childhood and, like, pull some different stuff out. Enough with the t- twisted trees already. We're going to see one in Dumbo. So I, I've, I'm already, like, I'm resigning to that. I'm not going to be surprised when it happens. I'm not even going to be disappointed. I'm just ready for it. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Johnny Depp's hairpiece from Sleepy Hollow returns, except they put it on George McFly's head. Oh Crispin Glover. No, it's nicer in Sleepy Hollow. I think that's his actual real hair in Sleepy Hollow. This looked a lot like it, though. No, Johnny Depp had like nice locks in Sleepy Hollow. That's my favorite Johnny Depp besides Jack Sparrow, so don't hate on that. No, I love Sleepy Hollow. No, I, I, I think that's one of the better Burton. But see, Sleepy Hollow, Batman, those are films that lend themselves well to his dark, yeah. whimsy style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If we're going to talk about he's tackling a character that he himself did not write. Right. I understand where maybe he wanted to do it in this movie. And the Hot Topic generation was probably (laughs) thrilled when they heard that he was going to do this. But it doesn't work. It does not work. You can't take a movie that was as bright and colorful and mad and whimsical as the 1951 Alice in Wonderland, a movie I like for reasons I don't understand, and make it dark, twisted, dirty. No, and just that's the stop. Thing. We're not even so invested in the animated one where he feel like where we feel like he completely butchered this on us and like ruined one of our favorite movies. This is just bad filmmaking, and that's what makes me angry about it. Because you want it like that's the other thing, even to compare it to something like Willy Wonka, his set in Willy Wonka, mm. we were expecting greatness and that that fell flat, too. And that was Johnny Depp. He bombed that part, too. Willy Wonka was one of my favorite films as a child. And thank God Disney didn't release it because I saw it once. I will never see it again. Because I don't want to watch it again. Because I don't have to review it. Because Disney didn't make it. And I'm so happy about that. Yeah. 
No, it that that Michael Jackson thing he had going on. Oh, no, that didn't work at all. So bad with those big fake teeth. Oh my god! But that's what I'm saying. Like even the the Oompa Loompas, so disappointing. The same yep. way, like I thought the Tweedles were going to be really really cool, and no, they're just creepy looking. And like it doesn't even. I mean, I don't know. Maybe he drew from the book, but it, it, they they kind of look like Pugsley Adams. That's what I said. And, oh, I thought you meant they looked like pug dogs. No, I meant Pugsley Adams. I get, yeah, okay, yeah, well, yeah, there it is. With the black and white the stripes. stripes. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. But they're like round. They're completely round. They're, they have, it just doesn't make sense. They almost look like uh, Humpty Dumpty. Yes. They look like egg children. Yeah. They have no neck. They don't even really have a head. And that's what I'm saying. Like, I think they you... look like something out of Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah, like the mayor almost. Yeah. But even that, like, I feel like you could have, if you wanted to create this like round effect, you could have done that in the wardrobe. Like, why did you have to make them round? And it's not like it even serves any purpose because it's not like they like tuck and roll or anything. It's not like they really do anything with their shape. Right. So there, there's no point to it. Um. Speaking of disappointments, one of the all-time greatest actors, Alan Rickman, lends his voice to the Caterpillar, and I was so excited, and I do think that that's really, really great casting, but I want to see it. He is completely CGI. They don't even, like, superimpose his face onto the Caterpillar, and, like, this was a real missed opportunity for a cool costume to have the actor, like, actually play in it. Right. We talked uh, with Big Fat Panda a couple of weeks ago how um, when they did Into the Woods and they put Johnny Depp in an actual outfit, it wasn't a wolf costume per se, but they sort of stylized it the way you would think to see it on a screen. Exactly. That would have worked so well here. Right. Or even if they wanted it to be more of a caterpillar than just the actor dressed up, they could have even they missed the opportunity to build a cool set. Like you could have had him sitting on top of the mushroom with like all the legs as animatronics. And then Alan Rickman just like stick his little head in Mm -hmm. and give the performance. They really, really missed the mark here. So we get introduced to the queen of hearts earlier on in this film uh, because she's in the next scene and well, congratulations, Tim Burton. We met a Disney villain that I don't like. Yeah. Um, Elena Bonham Carter looks like Queen Amidala's bobblehead, and her screech is infuriating. Off of the head! Off of the head! Oh, God. It's, it's, it's so overdone. This movie, for, for, for people that know how to act, this film, on so many levels, suffers from overacting. To the point where it's you almost laugh at how bad it becomes. By the way, we've been on for over 23 minutes. We're only about 11 minutes into the movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was really excited when they cast Helena Bonham Carter. I mean, it's no surprise because at the time she was married to Tim Burton. Um, and she was in everything. You know, she did Sweeney Todd. And I was excited to see her with Johnny Depp again after Sweeney Todd. But... Um, and I was really excited, too, because she was Bellatrix in Harry Potter. So I thought she was going to bring that, like, same insane, maniacal, like, almost like she was, like, getting off on being crazy and killing. And I thought she was going to bring that to this role, and she didn't at all. She plays the Red Queen like she's a spoiled, petulant child. And it works, but not when you compare it to something like Bellatrix and Harry Potter where we've seen her. Like, what I love so much about it that stands out to me about her performance is when she's holding her wand, she twitches. Like, she cannot wait to fire it off. And, like, that's what I wanted here. She delivers on the off with her head because she's screaming at every other sentence. But to give this, like, big baby performance instead of somebody that's like clearly unhinged was so disappointing. 
And to top it all off, she looks like Winifred Sanderson. So I almost would have rather seen Bette Midler pull this one off. And she lost her voice every day at the end of production. Yeah. From screaming. You can tell. I think they they kind of like did the best with what they had to work with because you can tell she's getting hoarse. Yeah. What bothers me most about it, as with most things in this film, is the CGI. Um, I thought they just completely like green screened something on her head. And after researching this movie, it does get a little bit of credit back because they did do, do the makeup practical. And she would sit in the makeup chair for like four hours before they started shooting to get Red Queen ready. They would put the bald cap on her and then they would paint her face white and they put the little heart on her lips and then they did the crazy eye makeup. But it's like, what was the point if you were going to CGI her head anyway? Because then what they did in post-production is they would go in like frame by frame and then blow the top of her head up. But then it looks like disproportional to the rest of her body. So they still have to do her neck as well and make it blend into the costume. Right. And I think they tried to address that with the costume by giving her like broader shoulders. Right. Um. But at one point, they're like, oh, yeah, we, she looks like a clown. It's like, yes, yes, she does. She looks like the love child of Winifred Sanderson and Pennywise. With Uncle John Wayne Gacy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. It's true. It's true. But see, that, yes, I would have liked to see her pull from Gacy's book to make this character more creepy and menacing. Yeah, for somebody that for all the reasons you pointed out and the way that she did Harry Potter, like you th- you'd think that that would have been her inspiration, but instead she just screams. Like it's irrational to me that this is an actress who's fairly good at what she does. Um, I, I appreciate her more in Fight Club than in any of these other films that you've mentioned, but... You can't talk about Fight Club. But it's still, a, you know, she's still really good. The fact that her big takeaway is that she had no voice by the end yeah. of the day, every day from screaming. That's not acting. I mean, I understand. If and maybe it's not for me to say, but that's not acting. That's just reacting. Being loud. Yeah. I, I totally understand, though, if you wanted to stay away from anything that you did with Bellatrix, because then we'd be sitting here talking about her. Her performance was contrived. So I, I get that where you don't want to do a carbon copy of another performance. But I'm just saying the character is so different and I just would have liked to see some sort of influence or or some sort of menace. And and that also may not be completely her fault. I mean, I Tim Burton, that that's the thing. Like to his credit, when he does work with the same people over and over, he really does give them a lot of input on how their characters are developed. And I know that he did that with Johnny Depp for The Hatter, which we're going to get to. And with the Red Queen is he let them have a say in their wardrobe, in their makeup. And he really allowed the actors to build the characters along with him. So this also does go back to bad direction if that's what he wanted. And the amazing thing, especially with Johnny Depp, as we learned, um, they both unknowingly drew sketches of what they thought the character might look like and it was the exact same guy literally the exact same thing big bow tie big top hat crazy fiery orange hair i mean they are close they've done god knows how many movies together but like in real life they're close johnny depp is actually uh the godfather of helena bonham carter and tim burton's child um so i see where you know, they obviously have a great working relationship and I see where he would want Johnny Depp to do something like this. And especially when they're just so in sync with each other and so on the same page that they literally drew the same thing before comparing any notes for what the vision of this character was. You think it would all work so well. But it doesn't. But we are greeted with a familiar sight as soon as we get to the scene in which we are introduced to the Mad Hatter. Oh, look. A broken windmill. Again. That was one of the most disappointing things. Probably second to the caterpillar was the tea party scene for me. As a whole. You're out in the garden. 
why of a windmill? Because it's what he knows to do. Sure. But it I mean it serves no purpose for the Mad Hatter and for that character. You're you're living in a windmill is what you mean to tell me? And Johnny Depp, in my opinion, and I like him a lot, he is way too over the top. He's way too unhinged. His backstory gives no indication at all as to why he is mad. Why they felt the need to give us a backstory but not give us any explanation why he is the way he is. Like most of this movie is completely unnecessary. Right. He's not an alcoholic either. So that's not what's driving it, driving him to madness. Right. Um, The biggest letdown, and I mean, I remember when I saw the first picture that they released of the Mad Hatter, and I was like, oh my God, this is so exciting. I thought he looked great. I loved what they did. And I thought this was going to be one of his most brilliant performances. No. It's one of the biggest disappointments. Probably it's like a toss up between this and Willy Wonka. Him and Burton had like a streak of misses. But um, he changed his accents quite a bit. Yes. Like when I first saw this movie, I remember we walked out of the theater at the event when we did the premiere for it. And I said the Mad Hatter is a combination of almost every character Johnny Depp has ever played and not in a good way. Like, you know, we're talking about how we wish Helena Bonham Carter would have pulled from Bellatrix. I wish he'd left the rest of his repertoire alone. Like, he runs like Jack Sparrow. I wish he had pulled from, like, Jack Sparrow's drunkenness, you know, with the TC, and I think that could have been a lot of fun. Um, He dips in and out of this Scottish accent, like when he plays J.M. Barry in Finding Neverland. Um... And I noticed a lot of other like quirky things from, you know, he does do a little bit bit of the Ichabod Crane, like that timid, uh, almost like frightened child. Yeah. Uh, but, But it just doesn't like mesh together well. And, you know, after researching some of this, he was supposed to bring the childlike qualities in present time and then the Scottish accent was supposed to be like for flashbacks. And when he said that, I was like, oh, okay. And I, I kind of felt silly for not picking up on that. But he doesn't change drastically enough where you even notice that the Scottish accent is supposed to be for one time period and this for another. No, I, I'd never picked up on that. The, the this is the first I'm hearing of it, and even as I sit here, I think to myself that makes no sense, though. Yeah, I I just thought it was like an unmotivated change. I thought that was supposed to be his descent into madness that he started talking Scott with a Scottish accent, right? But I didn't realize that that was intentional, and it it, it really doesn't seem like it lines up with those different parts of the movie where it's flashback. Yeah, it, it's it's jarring and it's confusing. And as he's doing it, for all the reasons you mentioned, it just doesn't come off like it makes any sort of sense whatsoever. No, and the whole scene is a letdown. I mean, I'm not suggesting that we needed a musical here, but without the unbirthday song, like the scene was seriously lacking. And this is where, like, that's the other thing. When you think of Beetlejuice, okay, you don't need all of the characters singing, but like when you put in a song like the iconic Beetlejuice scene of all of them dancing. Like I wanted to see that here. Well, we got to dance eventually. Oh my God. Eventually we do, but we'll just, we'll put a pause on that. Um, yeah. When we talk about the, uh, the, the culmination of this disaster, I think the Dormouse is okay. I kind of like the Dormouse. It's got some spunk, a feisty. I like, I like that character. Yeah. That's a change that actually worked instead of having like a complete drunk. Yeah. But the March Hare made me uncomfortable. Yeah. Like way too neurotic. I thought he was going to spontaneously combust. Yeah. He was like, he he was worse off than Bill Murray was in What About Bob? (laughs) Yeah. In, in, you know, with that compulsive behavior. 
And the the laugh was reminiscent of uh, Ed, the hyena in uh, yes. in Lion King. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it was. You know, and he's he's totally disheveled, and he's I think he's got one eye going one way, one eye going the other way. It's just to me, it I didn't think it added to it. You know, we said last week that we didn't necessarily believe that Alice in Wonderland, the animation, was based off an acid trip. This, this was... rabbit, yes. <laughs> this rabbit is, like, coked out. Yeah. I, I don't know how else to, to describe it. but as, as Tim Allen said in the Santa Claus, don't worry, I, I, I'm used to this. I lived through the 60s. <laughs> Moving on. Worst by far is when you have a Disney film with somebody who has already played a Disney princess and gone on to become an Academy Award nominated actress and she can't even save the thing. Yes, I am talking about Anne Hathaway. We can give up on how did you squander these actors, Tim Burton, because Tim Burton forgot how to direct for a period of time in his life. He forgot how to direct when he made Planet of the Apes. He forgot how to direct when he did um, uh, Willy Wonka. He forgot how to direct when he did Alice in Wonderland. He, he, I don't know how he squandered this cast. Mike Wazowski, fine. There was nothing (laughs) special about that anyway. But how you squandered those three, Johnny Depp, HBC and Anne Hathaway, I can't figure out. And the White Queen's castle looks like Sleeping Beauty's castle. Yeah. I feel like I'm walking down a dirty version of Main Street USA. Like if Main Street USA <laughs> shows up in Zombieland, that's what it's going to look like. And she looks like a blonde-haired Morticia Adams. You know, I actually don't mind the aesthetic on the White Queen uh, I I think it's like a lot of Burton we've seen, but I think it worked. I mean, they did that washed out albino thing. They definitely lightened her skin down. They dyed her hair blonde. Uh, they gave her black lipstick. Black lipstick, but they left her eyebrows dark. So I feel like that kind of worked. But at the same time, like I would have rather seen Gwen Stefani play this. Because she's really the only person who can actually pull off that look of the platinum blonde with the her natural eyebrows and red lipstick. Yeah. And she somehow Italians can't do that. She can. And and I don't understand. I know it's it was her choice, but she's constantly walking with her hands in the air and she's mm. trying to look like she's gliding, but it's so goofy that you can't help but laugh at it. It's almost as if it's it's like you know what it's like? It's like as if Anne Hathaway was portraying an over-the-top Glinda the Good Witch on Saturday Night Live. Yeah. This wasn't even, like, supposed to be spoofy like Amy Adams in Enchanted. Um, It was Anne Hathaway's decision to do these. Uh, I think she was drawing from, like, old Hollywood films. I think she said Norma Rae Desmond was an influence, and she kind of you know, had these like wavy hand gestures. That's really all like, it's not like the Disney princess wave. It's, it's just kind of like a, Oh, it's just like a really fluffy ditzy wave where she dips the one shoulder down and flicks her wrists and puts her arms up. You've seen it a hundred times. Right. And because of the way that her dress sat on her too, it gives her the effect that she's gliding. So, that should all work, but the problem is that the character is not ditzy enough where it seems to fit. It just looks like she's not performing to her full p- potential. Right, which is where you give Amy Adams a lot of credit for doing exactly. what she did in Enchanted. Exactly. Yeah, I would have rather seen the White Queen be more like that. Right. Than than just this... And, and why is she a witch? Why is she making a potion? Out of the most disgusting, vile ingredients. 
Yeah, like they're being really descriptive, and and they show most of them too. Like they have like a, I think she says butterfingers, but it's like an actual like long finger, and she sniffs it. Like that's where the ditziness comes in in this scene when she's making the potion. But it's so jarring because like that scene's really whimsical, and the rest of the time that she's being serious because she is the Red Queen's sister. That's that's the whole her whole role in this. The base of the potion was urine. Was it? I missed that. Yeah, it was. I think it was rocking horse fly urine. That was the base that they used to make this potion. Yeah, and then she puts in a finger, she spits in it, which I also think is Tim Burton just having a laugh of like, let's get an Academy Award actress to spit in a potion. I have nothing else. For that particular, but you know what's even worse than that? Cause is that Mike Wazowski just drinks it Well, without question? That actually didn't bother me because we talked about Alice last week, or she would literally do whatever you told her to. Drink me. Okay. Eat me. Okay. Alice, get in this van. Okay. Like, <laughs> you know, that's, she questions nothing that she does. Right. And doesn't follow her own good advice. That bothers me very, very little. If anything, that's the only part about this they got right. Crispin Glover, George McFly, um, he plays the knight who um, the Queen of Hearts is smitten with. And, oh, she executed the king, too. Um, Yeah, I think he's kind of like her henchman now, too. But, first off, his outfit is completely CGI. Yep. Her chair is CGI. She's not even sitting in in, like, a chair that they designed... On a set, it's a CGI chair. There's way too much CGI in this movie. That's what I'm saying. That you wanna you wanna design like a twisty chair. Like that's where I I would have really liked to see his set design come in. But earlier in the film, Alice and they don't know that it's Alice. She's been in the castle with the Red Queen. She ate too much of the biscuit and therefore was too tall. She was not her normal size. And while she's walking down the hallway, George McFly pins Alice against the wall and says, I like largeness. What the hell did I just watch? Yeah, that was awkward. It was so creepy. Yeah, and... and 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 for what? So that so that you cause conflict later on with the Queen of Hearts? No, it had nothing to do with the character really. Okay, for the story, yeah, you cause a little bit of conflict, but like it was just so uncomfortable. And it came out of nowhere. Yeah, so completely unnecessary. What we have failed to mention is the story that is being thread through here is that because Alice and his Allison, what? Um, Alice has been in Wonderland before as a child now she's coming back all grown up Uh, the purpose is that she can slay the Jabberwocky and that is as she's gone through each of these scenes and encounters all of these characters they keep keep insisting that she is the only one who can slay the Jabberwocky because it's almost been foretold they have like this calendar that like shows what's going to it's happen. It's like a scroll. Yeah. But it shows what's going to happen on this day. My baby Jabberwocky. Yes. Uh, the queen owns the Jabberwocky and supposedly Alice is the only one who can actually take it down. So that's that's her purpose. And I mean, that's the other thing where it, the, the film doesn't do it right. But I like that they at least gave Alice something to try for and a decision that she has to make for herself if she wants to step up and fulfill her destiny so to speak yeah alice at least develops as a character in this movie yeah i mean i don't really like what they did because the jabberwocky that's not completely arbitrary in one of the books they do read a jabberwocky poem actually it's what the mad hatter recites when he's telling her what it is it's in one of the scenes where she's shrunken down she's sitting on his shoulder and it sounds like he's talking gibberish because he does this through the stupid scottish accent he recites the poem um so it did actually come from the books and I guess I'm glad that they incorporated something from the books and they didn't just make it up. Um, 
But yeah, I like that they tried to give her a character arc. They they did successfully give her a character arc. I I just don't really care. Yeah. <laughs> about why. It's true. Especially because the Jabberwocky, when we finally see it, it looks like Maleficent. When she comes into dragon form. Yeah. Actually, it looks more like Maleficent in the parade. Yeah. Than it does in the animated Sleeping Beauty film. Yeah. Hey, that, that recently came back into Disney World, I know, actually. She's back, yeah. Yeah, everybody's excited about that one. Um. Yeah, and at the end of the film, I, I do like the attempt to tie it all together because as she's fighting the Jabberwocky, when she finally decides that she is ready to step up and help the people of Wonderland, and it, you know, it took her a while to figure out because they make her a bit more stubborn and the way that she is at her engagement party is, why do I have to listen to what everyone's telling me what to do? She gets to Wonderland and same thing. Everyone's telling her what to do. And she's like, well, maybe I don't want to do this. And then finally she remembers that she has been there before and these people are her friends and she can, has to save them. Um, so as she's fighting the Jabberwocky, she uh, is saying the six impossible things that she completed during the day and that's what makes her believe that she can actually do this right so i thought that was kind of a nice tie back to the beginning and uh other than that that's really the only nice thing i have to say about this because you know i give it a compliment and then it falls on its face even worse when they make the mad hatter do the futter whacking the futter whacking futter futter whack out of here i i I, (laughs) no no but Nobody needed to see that, and it made no sense. Why do did we have to sh- do we have to be showing how whimsical the Mad Hatter can be? Well, I guess you had to because you basically failed up to this point in time. No, I'll tell you why. I this was a hunch that I had, and yes, I know what you're about to it say. It was actually confirmed. I thought it was so absurd. I was like, Tim Burton just wants to screw around and see Johnny Depp dance in a movie, but actually. Because Johnny Depp swore he would never do anything like this and Tim Burton got him to do Sweeney Todd, he was like, all right, well, I made you sing in the last one. I'm going to make you dance in this one. And Johnny Depp was like, no, no, no. So right up until like the last possible second, Johnny Depp was actually going to learn choreography and they found somebody that can like that. that, Believe it or not, the hardest part that you pulled off was not CGI. That is actually somebody that can dance like a noodle. I don't know how else to describe it. Like he must not have a spinal cord with the fluidity of the movements, but they actually got a double to dance for Johnny Depp to win a bet or, or to make himself laugh. Yeah. He, he stuck this ridiculous scene in a big budget Disney film for his own entertainment. Yep. I mean, I'll say this. We've come a long way from uh, concept art on black cauldron. Have we? Because you know what? I like the Black Cauldron more than I like this movie. Yowza! I think the Black Cauldron is a better film. Because the Black Cauldron got certain things right. I think they have one of the most underrated villains in the history of a Disney film. Part of the Part of the reason why the Black Cauldron failed, we talked about it a few months ago, is that they were using technology that they didn't quite understand how to use. They were using technology that really at times had never been used before. But they had a great villain. They had some good elements. They had a great score by Elmer Bernstein. This movie had a great cast, had a big budget, had a seasoned director, and it was terrible. Yeah. So, personally, I think this, between the two, is the worst film. That's an incredibly strong statement, but... I feel most people will not agree with me I'm sure Randy Cartwright does not agree with me either. (laughs) And that's okay. We're all open to our own opinions. 
but I can forgive. You know what? Maybe is it even that it's a better movie? Maybe it's not a better movie. Maybe they're both really bad. But I can forgive the Black Cauldron for its shortcomings. Yeah, because there, that you, they really tried. I mean, you forget a softball. You put a tennis ball on a tee. And you brought Aaron Judge to the plate to hit the ball out of a Little League park. And he grounded out to first. Yeah, That's what this movie is. I want to put it out there to the listeners because I think that's actually a really interesting question is what is the worst movie? Yeah. Uh, you can you can discuss that with us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. And if you like this movie, if you like Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland, please enlighten us. Let us know what you like about it. What are we missing? But do yourself a favor and use a fake name. Don't disgrace your family. <laughs> news this week. I'm getting tired of reporting on the sad news, by the way, but unfortunately it is a necessary evil at times. Dave Smith, the founder of the Disney Archives, uh, has passed away. And he led some unbelievable career and saved so many amazing Disney artifacts from going out to the compost, really. Yeah, I can't believe that we're doing this two weeks in a row now. Uh, But this one really kind of hit close to home because we took the tour of the Disney Studios when we were out in California. And one of my favorite parts of it was going into the archives and seeing all of this amazing memorabilia from Disney history. And it means so much to the Disney historians, too. You can tell that they just love their job and keeping these things safe. It's amazing to think about how much this guy really did rescue the artifacts. You know, we talked about it on that show, for example, really how the Disney archives got started was he was going through a janitor's office down in the basement, just walking by, and he saw a snow globe sitting on the janitor's desk, and he said, do you know what this is? And the janitor was like, no, I found it in the trash. And it was the snow globe for Mary Poppins. And at that point, Dave Smith said, I I need to make sure that these things are never thrown away. Yeah, and what else are we sitting on that people think is trash and that's kind of how they started putting everything together yeah so another sad week for uh, for disney fans but at any rate hey don't forget to go check out www.monorealradio.wixsite.com slash home thanks to our great sponsor over at amazon.com you can get the instant video links for every film that we review here on monoreal radio if you're looking to book a trip this year for either Florida or California, I can help with that. So get in touch with me at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.